Hello, welcome to Head on History. Glad you could join me. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. So I wanted to dive in this week and talk about uh, the development of Shiism and Sufism. Last episode, we talked about how Orthodox Sunni Islam emerged as a series of debates about the nature of the Quran, the nature of God, and the best way to emulate or at least receive cl- or achieve closeness with God. And those debates, just to quickly summarize it so that we can build from there, really revolved around things like the Qur'an. Is the Qur'an created or uncreated? Is it co-eternal with God or is it not? And And this kind of argument formed around really two camps. There's multiple camps and multiple different thoughts that we haven't actually discussed, but two main camps, the Mutazili and the Ahli al Hadith. The Ahli al Hadith were a response to the kind of excesses of the Umayyad dynasty and a turn towards emulating Muhammad by collecting his tradition known as the Sunnah or the Hadith known as his which mean his sayings and then systematizing that into a law into a series of guidelines and regulations so that the Ahli al-Hadith were about bringing Islam into their daily lives the Mutazili developed what is known as Qalam or theology advanced rationalist thought that really absorbed neoplatonic Hellenic philosophy and sutured it onto Islam we see this in the writings of people like Al-Qindi and that the debates were shaped by political circumstance. The civil war between Al-Amin and Al-Ma'mun, with eventually the Ahli al-Hadith emerging as kind of victorious because they take this very saintly position in which they are faced with this persecution, but they refuse to cave. The Mutazali lead a series of kind of interrogations and, and, and um, inquisitions against the Ahli al-Hadith, who are really represented quite famously by uh, Ahmad ibn Hanbal, the father of Hanbali, uh, the Hanbali school, who rejects their interrogations and their inquisition, and he comes out squeaky clean. As a result, and both as, a, as the fact that, that the Ahli al-Hadith movement is geared towards populism, it becomes the mainstream thought, and Mutazili thought starts to fade. Some aspects of the Mutazili tradition some of its rationalism is absorbed and then blended with the Ahli al-Hadith movement, producing the Ashari theology that forms the heart of Sunni orthodoxy. So that's kind of the beginnings of Sunnism, right? How this debate comes together in a dialectic form um, and then produces another movement known as the Ashari or Sunni Islam. By that time, by the, about the 11th century, we can now say Sunni Islam. Before this, we had the proto-Sunnis and we had the Ahli al-Hadith and kind of very disparate movements with some commonalities, but they're all brought together under Sunnism. Sunni Islam fully accepts the first four caliphs. They go further and say that the uh, companions of Muhammad, all the companions of Muhammad, um, should be accepted and treated righteously. Ahmad in Hanbal goes so far as to say that no critique of them should be made. In such a case, they all become known as the Salaf, both the Sahaba and the Tabi'un, the first and second generations. They become known as the Salaf or the pious ancestors. This includes Muawiyah. 
Now, Muawiyah was part of the reason, Muawiyah and Yazid after him were part of the reason why the proto-Sunnis turned away from the caliphate in the first place. But now, under Ahmad ibn Hanbal, there is this attempt to kind of rewrite this history, consolidate it into a singular tradition, going, no, these aren't people that are have different opinions. Uthman and Omar are the same. Because the Uthman and even Muawiyah become people who transmit the hadiths. And so in order to legitimize that tradition of of passing on the uh, the hadiths and sayings of Muhammad, there is a rethinking of early Islamic narrative that creates the Sunni tradition, and so there's a deliberate formation of Sunnism done through the through the reinterpretation of history by saying all of these people, these early companions, are salafs, and we follow in their. This includes Ali, so Ali becomes uh, equally rightfully guided. Now, Shiism also emerges as a response to political experience. Um, the famous, it starts with the series of, of Khalifs, um, mainly in the Abbasid period. Uh, what the Abbasids did, uh, specifically under Al-Mansur and Al-Mahdi from about 775 to uh, 785, um, they argued their position. Now remember, the Abbasids emerged as a rebellion and revolution against the Umayyads, and they did so by drawing in the kind of disgruntled Muslims of the time. They brought in the, uh, the people who who were pissed at the Umayyads because they weren't fully following the prophetic tradition. That would be the Ahli al-Hadith. They brought in the proto-Shia or the Aliyads, the party of Ali, by saying, hey, we're going to restore the, the dynasty of Muhammad. They even brought in the Muwali, these recent converts to Islam, by saying, look, you're being mistreated. Come over to our side. Even Jews and Christians by saying, look, you had to face this Jezia tax. You're, you're not quite, you've got this dimmy status. We'll give you better conditions. So they all come together and and they create the Abbasid revolution um, quite early on, overthrow uh, the the uh, traditions, they overthrow the Umayyad traditions, they're successful, um, but then right as they're establishing their authority, they need to justify their rule. Now, they had promised the Shia that they would restore the tradition of Muhammad, the dynasty of Muhammad. In the Aliyad tradition, it is go, it's from Ali and his direct descendants, who are related to Muhammad, Muhammad's grandchildren, would therefore be the dynasty that should rule. But the Abbasids claim legitimacy through Abbas, Muhammad's uncle. And so under Al-Mansur and Al-Mahdi, they say, no, the tradition we're going to support is the claim of Abbas, Muhammad's uncle, not the claim of Hussein and Hassan. And so they begin a period of persecution. This persecution isn't just new. It started in the Umayyad period as well. We know that, for example, Muhammad al-Baqir, who is considered by later Shias the fifth imam of, of Islam, he lived from 677 to 733, faced serious persecution. Muhammad al-Baqir faced uh, opposition from the Umayyads, who saw him as a threat to their authority. They saw Muhammad al-Baqir as a direct threat to their legitimacy as a dynasty in the Umayyads. And, and so what they did is they, in fact, went so far as to invite him to come and visit the Khalif and then mistreated him by uh, refusing to see him for three days, threatening him, you know, doing all sorts of insinuations. But the persecution that Muhammad al-Baqir experienced produced very important developments in early Shia 
theology. He wrote a series of books, most famously, uh, one of them is known as Tafsir al-Baqir, the other one is known as, as Ma'athirul Baqir, and in both of them, he argues that there is a sort of tradition within Islam when it comes to understanding the Qur'an. In the same way that the Ahli al-Hadith, who eventually become the Sunnis, argue that you needed to look to the Hadith in order to understand the various ways in which principles of the Qur'an can be applied to life, under Muhammad al-Baqir there is this idea of the Zahir and the Batin, that is the apparent meaning of the Qur'an and the hidden meaning of the Qur'an, therefore elevating the status of the Imam. The Imam is the interpreter of the inner meaning of the Quran. Now Muhammad al-Baqir dies and he after him is Jafar al-Sadiq who lives from about 703 to 765. So he lives, so he experiences the persecutions that really developed under al-Mansur and later al-Mahdi. And his followers in particular experience this kind of resentment of the Abbasid Caliphate who had promised all this 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 uh, you know changes promised to bring about the Aliyah dynasty but then failed to do, do so and instead supported the Abbasid tradition or the tradition of Abbas in order to legitimize their rule and so Jafar al-Sadiq um, becomes part of that tradition of facing persecution and then developing the tradition. In other words, just as the Ahli al-Hadith and the Sunnis uh, developed their theology as a result of their historical experiences, so too does Shia Islam develop its theology as a result of its experiences. For example, under Jafar al-Sadiq comes forth the theory, the idea of taqiyah. Facing persecution meant that you had to deal with, do I want to get killed by the ruler or not? And so so he came up with this theory, this theory justified by the Quran and the sayings of Muhammad called taqiyah. Now, if anyone has ever been online at any time in their life and they are Muslim or they say something about Muslim, you have heard this word taqiyah. I, I get it thrown at me all the time. I mean, I don't even talk about my personal beliefs or anything like that online. I, 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 come, I talk about my background as an academic. I talk about scholarly things. I talk about, I analyze. And yet every time I put out an article or I publish someone, some dim-witted numbskull jumps up and goes, Taqiyah! And for them, what Taqiyah basically means is uh, you're a Muslim and you're lying. It's a very weird kind of it's a weird development in kind of the contemporary discourse. And what it does is it actually absorbs a lot of this weird anti-Semitic tropes and the the old kind of Cold War tropes of, the, oh, you can't trust foreigners, you can't trust Jews. Jews in particular were always accused of having like double speak or being part of some kind of international conspiracy, right? Protocols of Zion bullshit. This type of anti-Semitism is then reworked into taqiyah. Taqiyah is the, the, does the, kind of performs the same type of labor or the same type of function in which it is used to delegitimize any Muslim or anyone talking about Islam if they have a Muslim-sounding name or they're brown or if they're, they happen, even if they're white and an American scholar, you can say taqiyah and it would basically, is, the idea is that, oh, well, you're actually lying, you're putting forth a series of lies and you're actually an apologist and the implicit accusation is, or the implied accusation is that you're part of some type of conspiracy to infiltrate. Right Now the irony is that it shows just such a deep, deep ignorance of what taqiyah really means. Taqiyah emerges as a particular thought of Jafar al-Sadiq during a time of severe persecution. And what taqiyah basically says is that you have the right to omit 
what your personal beliefs are. The Abbasids, uh, starting with Al-Mansur and Al-Mahdi, and then much, and then also with Al-Ma'mun, go, go through a series of kind of persecutions, right, and inquisitions, testing what people believe and trying to force them and conform them into their orthodoxy and that orthodoxy that favors the caliphate and so under the jafar sadiq the early shiites the the aliyids were allowed to say to omit what it is they truly believed in what it was that they their where their true beliefs lay so that they could avoid persecution it was not about lying it was not about infiltrating it was not about deceiving it was really about self-preservation of protecting yourself that's a very important part uh, of the the kind of theology that jafar sadiq uh, developed so here you have this ancient uh, medieval belief and theological precept that is now repurposed in the contemporary world in this kind of crazy moment of islamophobia uh, so that i found that quite interesting but he also develops other other main uh, elements of Shia uh, theology. He develops what's known as na'as, that is designation, in which the Shia imams have the right to designate who their successor is. And this becomes very important for the division within Shia Islam itself. Shia Islam falls into two categories. Uh, Ismaili Shia, in which seven imams are accepted. That is, there are seven imams total, and that these imams are the main spiritual leaders of Islam. The seventh, having gone into occultation, occultation meaning that he's hiding, right, in a sort of way, in the same way that some would say that Jesus will return in the end of days, so too do Shias believe that the last imam will return at the end of days. And then there are twelver uh, Shias uh, that believe in twelve imams, with the last going into occultation. But the theory of the imamate is really developed by Jafar al-Sadiq in response to this, to the caliphate, this caliphate that was corrupt and that was oppressive and persecuting the Shias. And so there's this idea that goes, look, from the time of Muawiyah, the caliphate has failed. Here we are in contemporary times, decades later, uh, almost 100 or so years later, after Muawiyah, and we're still experiencing corruption and persecution. There is clear evidence that the caliphate has failed. But that doesn't, that's okay. If the political structure of Islam is failing, the spiritual community community can survive and it can survive through the imamate so the spiritual community the people of true believers joined together and 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 linked to the imam is known as the imamate the imamate is developed by Jafar al-Sadiq in response to the failures of the caliphate, to the persecution and oppression and of the caliphate. And instead goes, if that community, the political community, the mainstream, the big community fails, then we can develop a spiritual community in which we follow the teachings of the um, imam. This will be known as the imamate. To justify the power of the imam, to explain, in other words, to explain why it is that the imam is the rightful leader of the community and not the khalif, um, he sets down in this book that uh, the Kitab al-Jafar, a series of ideas about the Quran. He argues that the Quran has several components. The statement set down, that is the very apparent words, right? So if the Quran says something, that's the first, the surface words, that is the statement set down. The implied purport, that is the implied meaning of the statement, right? So what does that statement mean? The hidden meaning, 
right? The hidden meaning, meaning. What is the true meaning there? What that statement is related to the suprasensible world. The suprasensible world means, means the world of the mystical, the world that is beyond the apparent, the metaphysical world, if you will, the world of God and angels, etc. In this way, reflecting the kind of platonic ideas of the idioms or the platonic ideas of the platonic world, right? Because this is what Plato talks about. And then it has another component, the exalted spiritual doctrines. So he basically says that the plain meanings were for common people, everyone who reads the Quran. The hidden meanings were for the elite, that is people who uh, were scholars and experts. The implied meanings were for the friends of God, the Rafiq al-Awa, um, and the exalted spiritual doctrines were the province of the Prophet. Now the friends of God are the Imam. Right. So we see here that in the way that he explains the Quran and the accessibility to the Quran, he's developing the theory of the imamate. And this is in direct response to what's going on in the broader community. You have the Khalif who's saying you have to uh, you have to abide by a series of political legitimizations. You have to accept us as the rightful political leader of Islam. You have to accept us as as the people who will uh, guard the community and you have to accept our legitimacy through the uncle of Abbas. You have the Ahli al-Hadith who argue that the Qur'an is accessible and open to everyone, but you need to apply the principles of the Qur'an vis-a-vis -vis the system that develops from emulating Muhammad's life, that is the Hadith and the Sunnahs. And now you have Shia Islam saying that the Qur'an is accessible to everyone, but the hidden meaning of the Qur'an is passed down via the Imams. And if you want to be to understand that hidden meaning, you have to be part of the imamate. This is Shia. Shiism. Shiism is fully developed really by Jafar al-Sadiq. Both the Ahli al-Hadith, the proto-Sunnis, and the Shias join forces actually against the Mu'tazalis, disagreeing heavily with the Mu'tazali argument of what's known as the borderland. The Mu'tazalis try to argue that we don't know much about the early Muslim community, and so there are people that are in borderlands. That is, that they're not condemned, but they're not fully accepted. And they place, for example, Muawiyah in the borderland, right? The Sunnis reject that. They go, no, Muawiyah, uh, even though during the contemporaries of Muawiyah, they were horrified by his rebellion, they were horrified by Yazid and the Battle of Karbala, they eventually come to the position of, no, Muawiyah and Uthman are rightful uh, leaders. They are rightful ancestors, and we cannot put them in this kind of limbo. No, we accept them fully. So they reject the Mu'tazili position. On the other hand, you have the Shia who go, no, we reject Muawiyah. Not only do we reject Muawiyah, but we reject Uthman, all of whom, both of whom have taken away from Ali, who was the rightful imam of the time. And so it's by this time, by the time of Jafar al-Sadiq and later, his descendants, that we start to see polemics against the first four caliphs. Remember, up until this particular time, Sunni and Shia are not fully distinct from one another. Even as they're divided on the battle of Karbala, even as they're divided on the battle, the first fitnas, even if they're battle divided on the civil wars, the people that we think of, of as opponents of Ali later become Shias, and the people that we think followers of Ali, Aliyids, end up becoming Sunni. So it's a way more complicated than that. And it's, it isn't until after Jafar al-Sadiq that we'd see the, both the polemic within the Sunni tradition that says, no, all of these people must be accepted as rightfully guided ancestors, and the polemic writings within the Shia tradition that goes, no, we reject those early people, even though the early Aliyads accepted Abu Bakr, Omar, reluctantly Uthman, but they did in the early 
states. And this is a very important way to understand uh, the developments of Islamic theology, that it is not as clear-cut as these communities blended with one another. For example, we take the figure of Jafar al-Sadiq. He, we talk about how he's a major, major figure in the development of Shia theology. Yet at the same time, we also have to acknowledge that Sunnis also respected Jafar al-Sadiq for his contributions to theology, his contributions to the collections of the Hadith. And Jafar al-Sadiq develops his own system of law in the same way that Abu Hanif does, the same way that Malik does, all of them form the madhabas of Islam. The Hanafi, the Maliki, the uh, Shafi, the Hanbali, and then under uh, Jafar al-Sadiq, the Jafari, which becomes the main legal school for Shiism. So what we see here is that both Sunni and Shia Islam develop as a result of um, their historical experiences, namely their experiences and disappointments with the political structures of Islam, with the broader community. After the kind of the sort of fragmentation of the, the Abbasid Caliphate, Sunnis emerge, the Ahli al-Hadith coalesce under the Ashari and uh, into Sunni Islam with a more unified theology and unified uh, outlook. That by rejecting the persecutions and rejecting the inquisition of al-Ma'mun and later caliphs, they established their authorities as the ulama, the scholars. And the scholars are these new kind of intermediaries in the community, the elite who had mastered the ritual doctrine. They were kind of ritual doctors, if you will. And they could prescribe to you how to pray, how to wash yourself, all the kind of things you needed to do in order to physically, literally physically, emulate Muhammad. And the Shias had developed a fully formed theology after Jafar al-Sadiq as a rejection of the caliphate, the failure of that corrupt caliphate, and instead the formation of an imamate, a community that was dedicated towards interpreting the hidden, true meanings of the Quran. And this is this period of major debates and persecution and back and forth is really a massively diverse period. We often talk about Islam as Sunni and Shia, but the reality is there's so much more to it. For example, in that ninth century moment, when when there are these debates going on, there are a group of people known as the Sumaniya. The Sumani are actually Buddhists who had um, a lot of influence on Islam. The Sumaniya had an influence not just on certain aspects of Islam, but even in the broader imperial tradition. So first, let's talk about who they are. The Sumaniya were originally Buddhist, probably from the region of Khorasan in eastern Iran, modern-day Afghanistan, and they converted to Islam. Now, some argue that they didn't, and there was a series of debates that went on with Muslims and the Sumaniya. It's complicated because sometimes when Muslims are talking about Buddhists, they refer to them as Sumaniya, and then there are also Muslim converts from Buddhism called the Sumaniya. But what the Sumaniya believed is that there was no personal deity, that Allah was completely and totally transcendent. And this is attested to uh, by a man who actually debated them, Jahab ibn Safwan, who himself faced a lot of kind of arguments with uh, ah, Ahmad ibn Hanbal. But the Buddhists also had an influence on the imperial tradition of Islam, not just the kind of, you know, the debates through the Barkhamids. The Barkhamids were the main family that supported the Abbasids. The Barkhamids, again, came from eastern Iran um, and Afghanistan, and they were originally Buddhist clerics that converted 
converted to Islam and became the main viceroys and viziers of the Abbasid dynasty. And when the Abbasids started to fragment, they brought in the Buyids, who were also originally Buddhists, but then converted to Shia Islam. So now it's not just a matter of conversion in which they had an influence, they also had an influence on some aspects of Sufism. And that's what I want to talk about next. So Sufism it's often very mistakenly viewed as the third sect of Islam. So people will go Sunni Islam, Shia Islam, Sufi Islam. Except that Sufis aren't separate. Sufis are Sunnis. Some Shias can also be Sunnis, but in general, Sufis are all Sunnis. They are a particular discipline within Sunni Islam that emerges, a part of the tradition that we see in the Ahli al-Hadith. Sufism um, is kind of a weird term. Uh, in Islam, we refer to it as tasawuf, that is, as it refers to spirituality. Sufism is really more of an Orientalist word that emerged in the 19th century by Orientalists that wanted to distinguish between those aspects of Islam that they thought were cool, the kind of mystical, musical, spiritual, esoteric aspects of Islam. They're like, oh, well, that's Sufism that's tolerant, it's beautiful, they whirl in circles versus other versions of Islam like, like Sharia, where in reality the two actually emerge side by side. So the Ahli al-Hadith emerged as the proto-Sunni movement. They eventually become Sunnism. And for the Ahli al-Hadith, it was about strict observance to ritual. That is, that if you understood the various ways to pray, to perform ablutions, you became an expert. That is, the ulema, right? And that is, you would emulate Muhammad by his actions, doing what he needed to do. For Sufism, or for Tasawwuf, it was about mastering those rituals, but also eliminating the ego. The self had to be completely removed. So ilm, that is knowledge, was not just knowledge of the actions of Muhammad, but the philosophy of Muhammad. And so Muhammad would be put forth as a sort of example for people. And it was used in quite for some fantastic polemic ways. Like whenever someone did something, like, ah, but that's not how Muhammad would have done it, right? So there was a, a great, an interesting way in which Muhammad became a way to attack corrupt rulers and whatnot. But for Sufism, it was about understanding the philosophy of Muhammad. And so it was about cultivating, learning the law, mastering and memorizing the traditions, that is the Hadith and the Sunnah, systematizing that into Sharia. So many Sunni, Sufi scholars were masters of Sharia. This is, It's not like they were like, don't pray, don't fast, just believe believe in God. This is a weird kind of modern day hipster, you know, new age bullshit interpretation of Sufism that we've seen emerge in kind of these circles where they're like, I'm into Sufi Islam. Oh, cool. Do you pray five times a day? No, I believe in oneness of God. I'm like, that's not actually Sufism. That's just you throwing crystals in with the word Sufism, right? That's not how it works. Sufis are part of the Sunni tradition. In fact, this is one of the kind of frustrating aspects of what happened a few weeks back when, when ISIS or Daesh bombed a mosque in Egypt. They attacked this mosque and a lot of the adherents were Sufis. All the kind of tabloids and newspaper articles like the tolerant brand of Islam, Sufis, they were attacked by the, the crazy Daesh. And you kind of go, you do realize the people that were killed at that mosque would have identified themselves as Sunni. Within that Ahli al-Hadith tradition, that was a tongue twister there, within that proto-Sunni tradition, Sufism was just another 
dimension to it. It was saying, yes, we develop the Sharia, yes, we develop the Sunnah, but we also develop the philosophy of Muhammad. And in doing so, we can eliminate the ego. And there are major figures that kind of developed the, the early Sufi tradition. No one knows when Sufism really began. A lot of Sufis would argue that it started right at the beginning, that many of the Sahaba were Sufis themselves. Others argue that it really formed, developed in the 10th and 11th century during these kind of debates that we were talking about for Sunnism and Shiism. In reality, it probably, the idea and philosophy starts quite early, and then it's formalized in the 10th century. One of the earliest uh, kind of Sufi figures or saints that people look back on is Hassan al-Basri or Hassan al-Basri that we talked about last week. Remember we mentioned how he would pray on his roof and he would weep and he would weep so deeply for love of God that it, it would actually pour down into rivulets onto the ground. And that, that Hassan al-Basri is considered to be one of the earlier uh, Sufis. But he is inspired, and many Sufis later are inspired actually by a woman known as Rabia. And we've talked a lot about dudes, but we'll let, this is a really great moment to talk about the contribution of women, not just in Sufism, but in the broader tradition. Rabia is uh, one of the earliest Sufis, and she is a poet. And I think her poetry encapsulates quite beautifully um, the message of Sufism. And she writes, uh, Dear God, if I worship you for love of heaven, deny me heaven. If I worship you for fear of hell, cast me into hell. But if I worship you for love of you, then do not turn your face from me. So it's about true, deep love for God and this, this kind of existential experience of being separated from the oneness of God, that is the Tawheed of God, the unity of God. And while Rabia has a massive influence on Sufism, as do many other women, women contributed heavily into the scholarly tradition of uh, the Hadiths. We talked about how it was women that actually compiled the Hadiths very early on. Aisha was one of the most famous of the compilers of, of the Hadiths, and she was one of the people who transmitted many of the sayings of Muhammad and the traditions of, of Muhammad. Without um, her, there would be no Sunni Islam or Shia Islam. Similarly, Hafsa bint Umar passed down so much of those traditions. And the Muslim female community became important legal scholars who would translate and teach Sharia law. Take, for example, Fatima, and I'm going to probably mispronounce this multiple times because these names are very complicated, but Fatima al-Batayahiya, who actually taught uh, hadith and jurisprudence in Damascus. She was so famous that when she got older, she actually retired to Medina and taught directly from Muhammad's mosque. These are the people who collected and taught early Islamic jurisprudence and also created the spaces by which uh, these you know communities would develop another very famous one in in 859 Fatima al-Fahiri established the oldest university in the world that is still functioning continuous it's continuous to this day it's in Morocco and it's the Al-Qarawayn the Al-Qarawayn is the oldest degree granting university and in fact there's even an argument that to be made that the the system that was developed by the Al-Qarawayn is the system that then medieval 
universities adopt. In Islam, there's this thing known as the ijazah, that is where you are granted the permission to teach hadith or sharia or whatnot. And we have other ones. When you look at the 10th century, uh, you can find Lubna of, Car- of Cordoba, who had a cadre of 170 women um, at the library working on this great li- literary project that involved the procurement and translation texts for all of the Khalif's library. Women known as the Muhaditha were in these areas like Balkh and Bukhara and uh, Baghdad, major, major figures and they are part of the reason why Sunni Islam, Shia Islam and Suf the Sufi dimension develops. Under Rabia, you start to see this this focus on devotional faith, right? So Islam is developing these the the developments in Islamic theology are all dealing with the kind of intellectual traditions and the ritual traditions, what is known as Islam, right? Or Ibadat acts of worship how does this contrast with iman that is faith or or um you know that kind of internalized feeling how does this contrast with a deen right what is deen religion we refer to it as religion but religion brings up all these kind of weird corporate ideas of personal belief where in contrast deen really talks about kind of a whole system of philosophy under rabia you see a fusion of all of this right rabia and the and the early sufis bring all of this together bring the notions of ibadat that is worship along with the internal connotations of faith with the outward expressions of religion deen all together and see it as a holistic way of life that is these aren't compartmentalized and separate but one way of approaching islam by developing and emulating muhammad you would create the internal conditions so that's a really complicated way of saying that you don't just practice the rituals for the because Muhammad practiced the rituals. You don't just pray the way that Muhammad prayed. You don't just fast the way that Muhammad fasts. You do those things in order to create the internal condition that Muhammad lived in. And that was a state of purity and a state of what is known as fanna. Fanna means annihilation. That is the complete and total annihilation of the ego and the absorption of the self into the great unity that is uh, God, the Tawheed of God. Now, if that sounds familiar to people who have taken religious studies courses, you might note that that has a lot of similarities to Buddhism. And that is true. The early Sufi communities were the earliest Muslims that encountered Buddhists. As Sufism spread, and Sufis were often the ones that ended up um, on the kind of outskirts and edges of the empire, moving into uh, modern-day Afghanistan, northern India, into what is contemporary Pakistan. They were the ones that built these kind of monasteries on the Silk Road that allowed people to flow. And those encounters with Buddhism are how Islam spread. So Sufi Islam is one of the most important components of Islam, not just a mystical dimension, but part of the reason why Islam was able to spread into these areas. And their encounter with Buddhism transformed them. It's the way they started to explain fanna. But Sufi Islam is a branch within 
Sunni Islam. So what we can see within Sunni Islam is two kind of approaches or two arguments for why you should emulate Muhammad, why you should follow the path of Muhammad. There's the one which is the, the, the kind of ritualistic approach. You follow Muhammad by emulating his actions. And then there is the Sufi approach or the Tasawwuf approach that says you emulate Muhammad in order to recreate the internal conditions of purity that Muhammad lived in. In both of those cases, however, they are Sunni and they are are not a dichotomy or binary. It's not an it's not an either or. A lot of the old Sunni theologians, from Muhammad Ghazali to even Ibn Taymiyyah, had Sufi inclinations. That is, Sufism is actually a set of precepts and practices that are alongside the development of Sharia and Fiqh and jurisprudence within Sunni Islam. Eventually. There comes to be kind of two approaches to Sufism. One approach is epitomized by Rabia and it is devotional. It is ecstatic. These type of Sufis include start to include certain practices like dancing or singing. Um, very famous musicians, for example, Amr al-Khusro writes the song Mast Kalandar, which is passed down to this very day under Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, um, and even more contemporaneously, Sami Yusuf sings it. That is a Sufi devotional song. And then under Junyad of Baghdad, we start to see something called sober Sufism. Uh, Atar of Niyashapur writes that Junyad of, of Baghdad deeply, deeply felt the separation from God as early as seven years old. And he actually makes the Hajj at seven years, seven years old. He makes the pilgrimage to Mecca. And for him, Sufism is not an ecstatic experience as it is in the case of Rabia. It is not about these kind of ecstatic devotional practices, but about solemn meditative practices. So he really introduces the idea of, of constant remembrance of God known as zikr, the idea of remembering God in all that you do. Now, Hassan al-Basri, who was much earlier than him, had already introduced the tasbih, which is the prayer beads, so that you can pray using those prayer beads. And this also is likely brought over from Buddhism. Junyud of Baghdad is the one that develops the, the kind of systems of dhikr. You recite God's name this many times a day. You recite these verses of the Quran so many times a day so that you are constantly developing what is known as God consciousness, that you are constantly aware of God. And by developing God consciousness, you can then therefore lose the ego, annihilate the ego, and be absorbed into the unity that is God. In all of these cases, whether it's where is the kind of ecstatic tradition of Rabia or the sober tradition of Junyad of Baghdad, Sufism represents an attempt an attempt to create God consciousness, to remember God in every aspect of what you do. And you do so by emulating the holistic life of Muhammad. You, you don't just adopt his actions, but you adopt his manner, you adopt his personality, you adopt his his philosophy. So Sufis emphasize things like you don't you pray five times a day, but you are also kind and you are also generous. You give to the poor, but you do so because you have deep love for the poor, not because it is a ritual requirement. You go on the Hajj pilgrimage not to fulfill some type of legalistic check mark, but because it is to bring you closer to God. So Sufism is fundamentally a sort of outlook and perceptive and perception. 
This is where I'm going to end today with the kind of the introduction into Sufism and how it relates to Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. Hopefully this was an interesting podcast. You got to see how they were shaped by historical experience. The Sunnis were shaped by their dissatisfaction with the Khalifs and the persecutions uh, developing orthodoxy and how that produced the, uh, the, the kind of ritual doctors of the ulama, the legal scholars, um, and the emulation of Muhammad. You could see Shia Islam, how it dealt with um, persecutions and therefore develop their concept of the imamate and Sufi Islam emerging as a branch within Sunni Islam rejecting the sort of divisions and arguments within that the community was facing the arguments for philosophy the arguments for Kalam all these kind of major debates Sufism is a rejection of that a kind of inward turn and it was deeply popular it is accessible to the people it says no you don't have to become you don't have to become these experts you don't need to these the minutia what you need is to develop god consciousness and it creates a set of practices and those practices are then spread throughout the region and have become a major a component and constitutive component of why people convert to islam because it is accessible and available um next week i'm going to talk further about how this this process becomes formalized under certain figures we're going to talk about ibn taymiyyah and muhammad al-ghazali as the last bits of of islamic theology and how it deals with the catastrophe of the mongol invasion how that changes islamic thinking and then we're going to see that as the formation from which modern day islam really develops out of so we'll see how all of this medieval thinking then produces or sets the stage for contemporary islamic movements we'll finalize by talking about the formation of sufi orders we'll talk about all of that next week i'm going to end this week with a book recommendation this this is a fantastic, fantastic book for understanding um, the the kind of the past three episodes, the theological dimensions of Islam. It's by a guy named Tilman Nagel. He's a German dude, and he writes the history of Islamic theology. It's a little bit dense. It's a little bit uh, specialist, but it is a really, really good book. I'm also going to recommend one more book for you. Actually, I take that back. It's going to be two more books. I'm going to recommend Hadith, Muhammad's Legacy in the Medieval Modern World by Jonathan A.C. Brown. Jonathan Brown's book, Misquoting Muhammad, is also really, really good, and I would highly recommend it. Um, and finally, I would recommend a Carl Ernst following Muhammad. I think that's awesome. You can find other books that deal with this in partic- this particular topic, and they're also good as well. For example, uh, Sabine's book of the Oxford Handbook of Islamic Theology. It's pretty useful, but it is really kind of a, a weird, um, reference book. So if you're into reference books, check out um, you know, the Cambridge Companion or the uh, Oxford Companion. I prefer the Oxford Companion. But in regards to book, Carl Ernst, Following Muhammad, Rethinking Islam in the Contemporary World, fantastic, really talks about the kind of intellectual history of Muhammad. Nagel's book, The History of Islamic Theology, and Jonathan Brown's two books, uh, his book on the Hadith and Misquoting Muhammad. Both of them are fantastic. Anyways, that's all for now. Thank you for tuning in, and remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Mm-hmm.